Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is the fun size edition of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And asking your questions on your behalf is none other than producer Joe Russo. Producer Joe, how are you? I am doing well, Mick. I saw an R-rated comedy in the theater last night with a huge crowd, and it was good. Uh, so wow. I'm, in a, I'm in a great mood. When's the last time you had that experience? I honestly, literally, probably couldn't tell you. Uh, (laughs) The hangover, maybe? No, well, no, I mean, definitely since then. Oh, good. (laughs) You know, actually, I did. That's not entirely true. I can can tell you when it was. It was was a month ago. I actually caught a sneak preview of um, another upcoming R-rated comedy called Strays. It's the uh, Will Will Ferrell talking dog movie. Yeah. I quite enjoyed it. It was very fun. It's about a uh, a dog who is trying to return home to his uh, bad owner to bite him in the dick. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a premise that had to have been an easy pitch. Yeah, I, you would think. I mean, no, it's really funny, though, because that uh, I grew up on movies like Homeward Bound, which had like talking animals. So it's kind of like perfectly zeitgeisty for, for my age uh, to have now an adult already. But no, I, I saw... Uh, the new Jennifer Lawrence uh, comedy, No Hard Feelings, last night, and it was it was a really solid, uh, you know, no high concepts, no explosions, no sci-fi, no superheroes, just just good old fashioned relationships and conversations about sex and love and growing up. Uh, well, that sounds like something we really need right now. And if you saw it in a crowded theater, that's a very good sign. Absolutely. Uh, how are you? I'm good. I'm uh, looking forward to hearing the questions that, that make this show what it is. Well, From our fans who are so terrific and so supportive and so generous with their time and their thoughts and questions. Well, we've got, we've got a lot of good ones today. Uh then we're going to start with probably a little contentious one. Uh-oh. Tony Nacho writes, As a writer myself, the podcast episode detailing the Writers Guild of America strike was of particular interest. Though not a member, I stand with the WGA about receiving fair residuals from streaming services. But why is the creative world suddenly concerned with artificial intelligence? It seems disingenuous to stand in front of the rumbling AI tank now when it's already bulldozed through many occupations within the last decade, when blue-collar workers first started losing jobs to automated technology, a lot of middle-class workers offered their advice to learn another trade as a solution. Why can't this same advice be given to writers and other creatives as AI gains more of a foothold on our world? Well, it certainly can be. AI, uh, artificial intelligence, and and automated work are two entirely different uh, subjects. But, you know, we speak from within the job that we do and how it affects us. The difference about AI and screenwriting is what you feed into AI is what has gone before. And what comes out of AI is a conglomeration of what has gone before without the human quality of individual imagination. 
So maybe there's a combination of such, but that's that's the primary issue is you're, if you think the world of franchise movies now is bad, huh. if the scripts are composed by AI, they are just going to be worse. I mean, the sameness that we have from so many movies today is based on corporate choice. The sameness that you have if it comes uh, belching out of an AI system isn't just corporate choice, but it's also all it can do is remanufacture what has been fed into it and spit it out in its own language. And that is not the language of creative uh, thought and ingenuity. And then I don't know if you caught this this week, Mick, but uh, Warner Brothers is planning to use artificial intelligence to help them green light movies too. Uh, so not so not only are you know is it not going to be forward thinking, it's only going to be taking into account what worked in the past and telling the studio to green light based off of that regurgitation. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, and again. We're talking about the movie business because we work within that movie business. And the yes. word disingenuous is not appropriate in this regard because, yeah, we, I, you, we all have concerns about other people who are affected by this. But AI can be useful in a lot of ways, but it's not a creative force. Yeah, it can't, it can't think, it can't feel, it can't understand. Uh, so when we are synthesizing the ideas around us, our, our experiences around us and putting them into a story, that's the magic sauce that can help push film and TV into new directions. Yeah, uh, I mean, when you're talking about the 10th sequel to a movie, maybe AI would do just as good a job as anybody else. But I'm hoping that the ingenuity and talent and creativity of the writer Will bring something new and fresh to even the tenth sequel of a franchise. Exactly, and we're we're not we're not uh, you know we're we're not working in a factory. We're not you know kicking out widgets. Uh, there's 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 a little bit more nuance than that, and I think that's where that's where the rub comes from, and that's why people are so upset because people want to have that human touch to their film and television, and and that's why there's such an uproar. But it's not just we in the film industry. I mean, uh, fine artists and commercial artists are having their work replaced by AI. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing what AI can do. And a lot of it is really good. And a lot of it is like shockingly good. Um, but it affects the individuals in ways that uh, that our questioner brought up and are, are valid points but I can only speak from within the industry in which I work um, and, and have a, a sense of unity and sensitivity to how it affects other people too. And illustrators are among those who are most harshly affected by this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a really great uh, round table discussion on the movie Crypt a couple of weeks ago uh, that, that Joe Lynch and Adam Green did and they had uh, David Slade on. Um, and uh, really worth going and listening to if you want to hear a really in-depth conversation about how AI is reshaping the industry, not just potentially from a writer's perspective, but from uh, directors and other craftspeople within the VFX community and such as well. Um, one follow-up question, Nick, uh, have you tried AI yet? Have you, have you, you haven't fiddled with it yet? No, I haven't. No. Uh, well, 
I will say it still leaves a lot to be desired. Uh, yeah, but you know they're going to work that out, and yeah. you know it's 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 brand new in the way it's being used now, and yeah. I, it's only going to get better, um, and more power to it. But um, it's never going to be human beings. I will say the only real benefit I've found in it thus far at, is as a more sophisticated search engine. Uh, you know, instead of um, you know, me asking it to to write a scene, if I ask it for a specific, you know, thing about, I don't know, uh, some sort of health issue, right? Let's say I'm writing something about a health issue. Instead yeah. of sending me a bunch of, you know, like Google, I go to Google, it sends me like 100 web pages on the subject. It'll actually give me like a really concise page to read. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not worth, it's not worth dismissing or ignoring because it is no. an important tool in so many ways so yeah we'll, uh, we'll our, just have to see what happens but it's it's a very valid issue for our guilds to be concerned about yeah our engineer chris says he uses chat gpt to help him make his grocery list so well, there you go there you yeah. go that's much, nice much, and creative much more functional use of it uh all right ben writes i have a lot of respect and admiration for you Mick, and the way you carry yourself. I'm also a fan of your art. Well, uh, the, the way you talk to people and, and about people is really uplifting. I understand you have many years of social skills and practice and experience. Have you ever thought about running for a political office or being a community leader in some ways? I feel your wisdom and humility is infectious. Listening to you reminds me there is good things in the world and I try to do better. Well, that's very, very kind and generous, and I really appreciate those kind words. I mean, I've I, I've kind of spent my life being a bridge over troubled waters between fighting parents, between fighting band members and things like that. But the last thing I want to do is be in government, you know, <laughs> especially these days. I, I have no interest in that. I have no interest in fighting and compromising and not being able to fulfill the things I think are socially and, and uh, important in, in any way. Um, the idea of running for an office would be insane. Competing, I, I don't compete with other people that way. I don't want my life turned into 24 hours of turmoil. I, I have no sense of anything positive about being a politician. Well, there you have it. Uh, there will be no Mick Garris for president anytime soon. That's for sure. All right. Mr. Zeno writes, Joe and Mick, I don't know whether you've touched on this before or at what depth, but there are an awful lot of people named Joe Russo on IMDb. <laughs> yes, there are. Could you break down which is which? And does our Joe know any of the other Joe Russos? Yeah, well, this is one I'm going to hand over to you, Joe. Yeah, well, this has been a, a shadow that I've had to deal with uh, pretty much my entire career. Um, yeah, no, I mean, so the Italian equivalent of Dan Smith is Joe Russo, I feel like. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it is probably like the most common uh, name you can find out there. So, yeah, there's there's a bunch of us on, uh, on you know, I think I think it goes – stretches all the way up to like the, the teens of Joe Russo's on, on IMDb. Um, 
I, you know, I can, and, and what's even crazier too is uh, probably the one who casts the, the biggest shadow, uh, the Russo brothers, uh, Avengers Endgame Joe Russo. He's listed as Joe Russo number three on IMDb. Wow. Um, so he's not even number one. Um, but uh, I'm I'm Joe Russo seven on IMDb. Oh, that's not bad. It's not bad. Uh, but the good news is when you Google or when Google us, when you search on IMDb for us, we are the top two Joe Russos. Uh, so excellent. So yeah. the other part of the, of Dave's question was, do you know any of them? Well, uh, I don't actually. Well, that's that's not true. There is one Joe Russo who worked at a management company, and I have met him before. Uh, and we had we had a lot of fun, you know, kind of going back and forth on that. But uh, uh, Avengers Joe Russo and I have only traded emails. Um, we've never actually met in person, though I have met at his company before. Um, and uh, I think he's just afraid that we're going to, you know, meet and have to do a Highlander and there can only be one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've invited enough. him to join me on the picket line, Mick, but weirdly he hasn't, uh, he hasn't, he hasn't answered the call. Um, so that offer still stands. Uh, but, Fair but enough. no, um, the closest I came to meeting him was, was when I went into his office and when I checked in at reception, uh, I always get very confused looks when I tell them my name is Joe Russo, and uh, that 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 amuses me very much. Uh, Identity so, theft. Okay, we're alerting the uh, authorities. Yes, exactly. So there, there you have it. I haven't met a lot of the other ones. There are a lot of other ones, but at least the first two that come up are hopefully uh, the most important ones to you. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. right then. Adam Langham writes. I recently watched the Keanu Reeves hosted documentary Side by Side, which features many filmmakers talking about the differences between shooting on film and digital. There are several well-known directors who have a strong preference for one over the other. If money was not an issue and you had complete freedom to choose, which is your preferred medium and why? I have to tell you, I go digital. Most filmmakers of my vintage are committed to 35 or 70 millimeter film. And I love that um, in its first screening. By the right. time a print has screened for a week, it's scratched, it's dirty, there's crap all over. When you project film, even the best smoothest projectors, there's judder, the image shudders just a little bit. Um, it, film breaks. Uh, if properly maintained and properly shot and properly projected uh, digital film uh, film in quotes p-h-i-l-m so <laughs> um it's rock solid the colors never change no matter how many uh copies you make it's digitally perfect with film if you go down a generation you see the grain increase you can get prints that vary in color if they're not properly uh, handled. And uh, just the idea of doing visual effects with a, a digital image in the first place makes it much more compatible with the finished project product. So I, I believe that digital filmmaking has gotten to the point where it at least equals and in many, many ways exceeds what you can do with film. I know Quentin Tarantino and uh, uh, 
Christopher Nolan and a lot of other people would argue that point. But for me personally, I find it a more satisfying medium with which to work and where there are fewer issues uh, of quality between me and the projectionist. But that's so that's kind of in release, though. But what about uh, on set? Which would you like if you had the choice? Because uh, obviously, oh. 35 millimeter, uh, if you shot on 35 millimeter, it can still be converted to digital for release. It can, but, but you still have issues with if there's dirt on the on the gate. Uh, right, does, right. Does Check the gate. Anything like that. Check the gate. It still judders a tiny bit. Um, and with digital, and I know you said if cost was no uh, issue, uh, with digital, you can keep running for two hours as long if you want. And sure. you're limited to uh, eight or 10 minutes on a, on a reel of uh, 35 millimeter film. Yeah. So you have to change mags every eight or 10 minutes. Uh, and digital, a lot of people never cut which is something that drives editors crazy and myself <laughs> when you have to go through dailies when nobody cuts, that's no fun. But for me, I still lean toward digital in every regard, even shooting and not just projection. Yeah, no, I, I think there are, there are definitely a lot of advantages to digital, um, even if it is not the, uh, the traditional way. It's uh, not traditional and you have to impose grain into it or else mm -hmm. it looks like high definition television. That's right. And But they have gotten to the point where it at least meets the, the quality of 70 millimeter film at its best, but without the, the possibility of destructive elements. Totally agree. Well, let's switch from uh, directing to writing. Uh, Jim asks... When you write a script, you always start by reading everything you've already written before you begin the day's work. Uh, but do you do the same thing when you're writing a novel? For the first half, I do. Once yeah. I'm halfway in, I'm and having reread everything every day as I lead my way in, I don't feel the need to go back to the very beginning, but just a couple of chapters. Yeah. Because I've got the rhythm going, the pace is going. A script is 100 pages. A book is two to 300 pages for me. I've not written a long novel at this point. So uh, I feel I know it really well by the time I'm halfway through and just go back a couple of chapters. Yeah, I mean, if you want to make any kind of forward momentum, I imagine reading the entire uh, the entirety of the novel is going to eat away at more of the day than you're going to spend yeah. writing. Well, it's uh, going to take me more than a day to read it. So yeah, exactly, exactly. So that makes sense. When you get towards the end of the script, like when you get to the the eighty fives, nineties, the the ninety fives, do you still start from the beginning? By then, probably not, because yeah. by then. I'm not just writing five or 10 pages a day. I'm going to, if I've got 15 pages left, I'm going to try and do it all in that last day and keep yeah. the momentum going. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I tend to, um, when I get deeper into the scripts, uh, I'll still start from the beginning every couple of days or so, but, um, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it takes, it takes time to read just like it takes time to write. So, yeah. uh, and you a also work with a partner. So you are engaging each other in that as well. Yeah. But, but we're, when we're drafting, we're working separately. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a, it's a little, we're not, we're not like 
if we were writing over each other's shoulders, like creating new pages, but the other person watching, I don't think we'd ever get anything done. Uh, <laughs> we'd be arguing over every word, you know? So <laughs> I can imagine. Yep. All right. Uh, Rick writes, uh, Mr. Garrison, producer Joe, I just recently started listening to your show and absolutely love your podcast. Uh, while I hope it isn't too late in life, I'm 46 years old and have always wanted to be part of the entertainment industry in some form. I love to write and have been working on two full-length screenplays. How are you able to get it into the right hands as a means to sell a script? Well, that is a question that comes up on this show often. And yes, but if you're, but if Rick is a new listener, he probably hasn't heard our age-old advice. Yes, well, they're the most important person and gateway for a new writer is an agent or a manager. Um, it's very difficult to get through their lockbox to get to them. You have to have something that stands out from the pile of scripts that they take home every weekend, usually 30 scripts and something that engages them on the first page, certainly by the first 10 pages. But getting through to them is difficult. Screenplay competitions are very important and film festivals often have screenplay competitions. The Austin Film Festival is very screenwriter centric. They have competitions, they have seminars, they have places where you interact with agents who are looking to represent new talent and acquire new talent. There are a lot of people who are just gonna try and get your money and take advantage of you to because as with new actors or new writers or new directors, they, they can just offer you a, a, a seminar or something that's, that's useless. But there just, you know, Joe has um, some festivals and uh, competitions in particular that he can recommend. So producer Joe, have at it. Yeah, no, the Austin Film Festival is one we always, we always recommend. I think that's probably the, the best most screenwriter friendly of the festivals uh and and the one that agents and managers will pay the most attention to um the final draft competition is a good one um cover fly uh roadmap writers um gosh what else uh tracking-board.com um and then obviously the Nichols fellowship is is kind of the most prestigious because it's run by the academy of motion pictures and arts and sciences uh so, you know, there, there are a handful out there that can, you know, if you can place in those uh, contests, um, you can definitely spark the attention of agents and managers. But, you know, I think we'll also say, uh, we've said it before, the best way to do it is to have someone make a real human, genuine referral for you. Uh, you know, if you can find someone who you make a good enough relationship with and they read your screenplay and they like it enough and they have access to an agent or manager that is always going to be the best way to put a piece of material in front of a potential representative and then that material has to stand alone it has to be something you don't make excuses for well it's my first screenplay anything like that it has to be something that engages the reader, makes them want to keep turning the pages all the way to page 100 and be excited about it. And hopefully there's a voice that stands yeah. on its own. But to engage with well-written characters in a compelling story 
in a way that feels fresh and in a way that's well-written and not misspelled and grammar uh, a mess, all that stuff matters. And yeah. for it to be formatted properly, all those things, that's your responsibility. Then it's getting it into the hands of people whose responsibility it, it is to find a, a home for it. Yeah, I'll never forget one of my early, early general meetings. Uh, one of the producers of the, the recent Mortal Kombat said to me, um, I almost never finish scripts and I almost never finish them in one sitting. And that's why we're meeting uh, was, was yeah, he, there he you, go. you know, he read the whole thing in one sitting. Uh, so like that, you know, it, it's, it's got, it can't just be good. It has to be great. Yeah. Yeah. It's gotta be eye catching. Yep. Brain catching. Anyway. All right. Rob and Tom, right. Hello, Mick and Joe, big fans here in the UK. Hello, My Rob son, and Tom. Hello, hello, Rob and Tom. Uh, so Rob's son, Tom, is just setting out on his own horror movie journey. Uh, Tom has shared his favorites, age rating permitting, uh, and they recently sat down to watch Psycho. Uh, so Tom's question, uh, his son enjoyed the movie, but its classic status was a little lost on him. Uh, Tom writes, I tried in vain to explain why it's so important, but sadly, I failed. Mick, please help me out here. I think it's time we get an answer straight from the top. <laughs> I don't know about the top, but, <laughs> you know, there are a number of reasons Psycho is a classic, but also a number of reasons a young person might not appreciate its many values. First of all, it was made in 1960. It's in black and white. What people don't realize is that most horror movies at that time were monster movies. They were intended for a young audience, especially a teenage audience that was discovered in the 1950s where they had, I was a teenage werewolf. I was a teenage Frankenstein. I was, you know, all of these, how to make a monster. And you, you had the Japanese uh, kaiju movies and all those things. This was the first true horror movie that, the monster lived next door, that it's a human being and was motivated by psychological elements that had never been touched on before. In this case, they talk about it as transvestism and the like, but it was based very, very loosely on the life of Ed Gein, who would kill women and wear their flesh as costumes so he could feel as he was a woman. Um, it was Alfred Hitchcock who was known for really breezy, wonderful suspense films that were great, but also had a, a very Hollywood sense of style and entertainment value. He chose to shoot this in black and white with his TV show crew, the Alfred Hitchcock Presents crew. So it was being made as if it were an episode of his TV series, but it was and Universal didn't want to support it. And Hitchcock put his own money into it and it became the best decision he ever made. He made a fortune off of Psycho because he did invest in it because the studio didn't want to. It was Paramount, not Universal. Right, Universal, right. And he took, Universal he took it over to Universal. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. So Universal owns all the Psycho movies now, including the one that I did, Psycho 4. But, but um, it was... it. it stretched the boundaries of what a horror could, movie could be. It wasn't just a fun monster fest. You know, it wasn't a universal monster movie. It wasn't an AIP 
monster movie. It wasn't Edgar Allan Poe, but it was something now. It took place now. The, the monster was a, a serial killer, as he would be described today, who lived among us, who seemed like a sweet young man. And nobody had ever done that before. And yeah. it took Alfred Hitchcock and his confidence. He had read the book written by uh, Robert Block, and then Joe Stefano wrote the screenplay, and they made something that was a sensation, lines around the block. It was like The Exorcist when it came out. It was like Jaws when it came out. Um, it was, it changed the course of horror movie history and influenced everything after it, uh, especially John Carpenter's Halloween in 1978. Ooh went to the same roots that Hitchcock had gone to in Psycho. And so uh, it just remains influential, even though it may seem slow and it's in black and white and it's in a different era that's, you know, 60 years ago. Um, it was so influential and still remains influential in a, a very innocent seeming central character turning out to be the monster, the wolf in sheep's clothing. I think also too, uh, at the time, there hadn't really been uh, any movies that mainstream audiences had seen where who they thought was the protagonist, uh, spoiler, is killed off at the end of the first act. Um, and we kind yes. of get all new new characters uh, to invest in. Um, that was a pretty ra radical revolutionary idea too, right? Right, absolutely. I mean, Janet Lee is the lead name on the on the posters and everything. And twenty minutes into the movie, she is slaughtered quite brutally in a shower scene. That, again, before that time, even though you never see the knife piercing flesh, and they had built a dummy and everything to to actually stab on screen and bleed and all, uh, it was this masterful collection of shots it was still more brutal than anything that a, a studio had ever released before. Yeah, no, it was, um, it truly, truly was a, a revolutionary picture and, uh, and casts a, a very big shadow over the horror genre. Uh, it still does. Yeah. Part, part of which, uh, Mick is, is inclusive of, uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the sole surviving director of a psycho movie. That's, that's, that's not something to, uh, there's only four of you, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, Mick. Well, that's, uh, that wraps it up for this week's ask Mick anything. Uh, um, thank you, Joe. And thank you to all the listeners out there for your great questions. And again, we'd really appreciate it. If you're uh, enjoying the show, if you would, uh, post your thoughts on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your casts. Yeah, give us those, give us those five stars. Um, <laughs> and if you want to send questions for future episodes, you can send them to our email, askmickanything at gmail.com, or you can Matt, find uh, Mick or I on the social medias, mix at Mick Garris PM on Twitter and Instagram. And I am at Joe Russo tweets and at Joe Russo Graham on Twitter and Instagram, respectively. And Mick Garris and the Postmortem Mortem Podcast are on Facebook as well. That's right. So that old that old dinosaur of a platform. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you go. Uh, you can follow us at all the places, and uh, and maybe we'll ask your question next time. That's uh, great. Thank you, Joe. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Mick. 
Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.